Insights into the elements of process safety, the only process safety podcast where each week industry professionals discuss their hands-on experiences and industry-tested solutions of the 14 PSM elements. Brought to you by Smith & Burgess, the trusted process safety advisor to the world's leading companies. Good morning. This is Dick Baum with Smith & Burgess. Today's podcast is going to focus on HAZOPs. I'm going to walk you through um, my historical perspective of HAZOPs, where they were, where they are now, and the future. Things are getting ready to change. So, HAZOPs for me started in 1989 when it was very simplistic and actually wasn't mandated by OSHA at the time the PSM standard came into play later. Uh, very simply put, we analyzed uh, process systems back in 89, and the categories were uh, quite unique because we only dealt with four. Uh, we had our deviations. We listed our consequences. We didn't list uh, safeguards, and there was no risk ranking at the time, so we followed up with just recommendations and action items to be completed. Again, that was 1989. The standard came out. <clears throat> the PSM standard came out, and it was mandated that everyone would do a process hazard analysis giving five different methods. This focus is going to be strictly on the HAZOP process. One of the main focuses of the HAZOP process is that it's a deviation or guide word-led HAZOP, which follows a very strict protocol. Uh, the only thing that's really changed for the guide words is in the olden days, <clears throat> if you read older reports, you'll always come across the some abbreviations that are no longer used. NSC was a big one, which stood for no significant consequences. And the other one was uh, NNI, which stood for no new issue. So times have changed, and times have changed because of compliance audits by OSHA. Uh, OSHA's contention is that uh, there needs to be more uh, structured text in defining causes and consequences. So the abbreviations seem to have gone by the wayside. The only other big issue that's changed in uh, guide words and deviations is we no longer delete years past. If you had a process flow that went into a reactor or a vessel, you would focus just on the line and any of the block valves or controls that were in that line. So words, guide words uh, similar to high-level temperature may or may not have come into play. Subsequently, because of investigations and compliance audits, Uh, incidents that have occurred, particularly, OSHA's found out that if people don't document uh, all the deviations for all the different nodes, then they can only assume that the issues weren't discussed. So even, be that as it may, even if they don't seem to be relevant to the process node, all deviations should be consistent from the first node to the last node keeping in mind that you can add deviations as you go. One good example is a concentration issue may come into play somewhere into the third, fourth, fifth, or sixth node, and then at that point in time that that deviation contamination would continue on. So the basic rule of thumb that I like to use is start with a good list of deviations. You can add to it. Don't delete. If you delete from there and something occurs or an event happens, It's never really known or able to be defined whether that was ever discussed. The other issue that has changed quite a bit is the uh, consequence category. So the consequences 
because everyone now uses risk matrix for identifying their risk and quantifying their risk. So the consequences always need to be spelled out in great detail and walk the event through. So a control valve failing on a nitrogen supply coming into a vessel, the consequence is going to be potential for high pressure, whether or not that leads to a leak or an explosion or a vessel rupture needs to be defined in the consequence and then the consequence further needs to define what the company's risk matrix specifies as categories of interest. So we always have health and safety, we always have environmental, we should look at um, loss of production, we should also look at damage to equipment, and the new uh, latest thing to show up is there's a lot of uh, companies now that have a, a very deep concern for what their image is in the public. So reputational risk ranking is something new and uh, has come into play over the last few years. As I said, most companies have risk matrix and the companies get to define what their accepted level of risk is. OSHA doesn't mandate that. Keep in mind that whatever the company says is going to be their guidelines for risk is what they have to adhere to. So the more effort a, a client puts forward in defining what their acceptable levels of risk, the more effort OSHA will make during compliance audits to make sure that they are doing what they say they're going to do. Process safety management as a whole is a very uh, broad-based standard that was written years ago, and it, it puts the burden onto the client as to what they're willing to accept or not accept. Keep in mind that always any compliance audit will always look at the documentation provided by the client and then work from that. So if you say it, you have to do it, and that's what they're going to look for. So identifying the risk, <clears throat> the big thing is to always make sure that the risk uh, matrix satisfies the risks and that we're operating in the safest possible way that we can. So in regard to that, we identify consequences. We pick out the severity of the consequences based on the risk matrix, and then we get to look at our safeguards. Keep in mind that safeguards are not IPLs. The LOPA topic is another discussion and another iPad, but safeguards are safeguards. And a HACCP is a very qualitative discussion between a team of people that get to determine how they feel the likelihood of the event should occur. Keep in mind also that when you apply the risk matrix that you're applying the likelihood to the entire scenario. So it's always going to be the likelihood that the operator closed the valve or that the control valve fails closed and that leads to the consequence which could be a fire and explosion, damage to equipment, employee injury, environmental impacts and on and on and on. The likelihood also includes that the safeguards are working. The consequence is written with no safeguards in place. The likelihood is written that the safeguards are in place and are maintained that they will perform as required. That's the best way to give a qualitative uh, risk analysis of each scenario. In case anything ever shows up into the bad part of the risk matrix or the red or the orange as they say, recommendations need to be developed by the team uh, to make sure that the risk can be mitigated down to a safe level. Writing recommendations is something that takes a long time. It takes a long time because they need to be presented to someone that may or may not be in the room during the process hazard analysis. 
And they should be able to determine from the recommendations that are written that the uh, understanding is there on paper as to what we're trying to achieve. Also keep in mind that during the recommendation development, you don't want to get into a big discussion uh, for solving all of the problems. They can be very point of fact, but you should mention what you would like to do and why you would like to do it. So keeping that in mind, uh, there has to be a lot of time and effort spent in developing the recommendations that come out of the of the PHA or the HAZOP. And that is the final output of a PHA or a HAZOP is the recommendations that have been generated to ensure that the safe work practices and safe operating limits are maintained for all the facilities that we uh, do HAZOPs on and conduct. So that being said, that's kind of the basic of the HAZOP. So what's coming in the future? There's a lot of discussion and a lot of changes, and the PSM standard is going to change. It's just a matter of time. The EPA has issued some uh, new guidelines that has taken into consideration the process hazard analysis uh, with regard to the RMP program, and the state of California is getting ready to issue new mandates on their PSM standard. <clears throat> the main focus of attention for both documents is inherent safe design and safeguard analysis. So the goal, and it's a good goal, is to make sure that are we doing everything we could possibly do to eliminate accidents from even occurring? And if we can't inject inherent safe technology, and sometimes you can't because facilities are already built, facilities are in service, they've been in service a long time, but there are ways to improve them, and that's instrumentation controls, PSVs, whatever the case may be. The second half of what's changing, though, is the safeguard analysis. So that's going to be a big deal. Uh, there's, a, there's always been a concern with facilitators and people and clients that because we list things as safeguards, do they really work? So safeguard analysis is coming. Uh, it's the future, and it's a good thing. What we're going to be doing is looking at safeguards. Uh, when people list safeguards, just as an example, a mechanical integrity program, we're going to be challenged and we're going to be mandated to review inspection frequencies, uh, the last inspections of vessels, to make sure that everything we credit for being secure and safe is indeed secure and safe. There'll be validation that will be required for um, safety systems to make sure that they are in a preventive maintenance program and that they're being tested on a frequency that they should be tested. The other big item would be operators' response to alarms. Uh, the books allow for credit to be taken for operator response to alarms. Having been an operator years ago, I can tell you that that's a very valid safeguard. But what we need to do is to stop, take a look, and make sure that A, the instrumentation that the operator is going to respond to is up to speed, has been tested, and is actually a credible alarm. And we have to make sure that the operator has enough time to actually do the uh, required movements that uh, will correct the action that the alarm has triggered. Those two, just to go into the PSM side a little bit more, once we list those, if we take credit for operator response to alarms, those, those alarms will then become a safety critical device. And any safety critical device in the PSM standard has to have an MI program assigned to it. And that MI program has to ensure that it's tested and, it, and that it's going to work. 
and also subsequently anything that we say is going to be a critical alarm has to show up in the operating procedures as a consequence of deviation. So it's a full circle. It always is a full circle. The PHA process and the HAZOP process is it's a very detailed and structured uh, program that works and it works well when it's um, conducted well and the right team members are present. It also provides a baseline for any compliance audit. There's two items that the compliance officers will always look for and that is MOCs and process hazard analysis. As I've walked you through the scenarios of, of everything with the process hazard analysis, you can see where all the elements come into play, or many of the elements, I shouldn't say all. So just from a process hazard analysis and reading a line description, you can come up with all sorts of different process safety um, items and uh, elements that come into play, be it uh, operating procedures or training or instrument and controls for the safety critical instruments, the MI program, and on and on and on. So that being said, those things are coming. Uh, we look forward to it. It'll be challenges for everyone. But the ultimate goal and objective is that the facilities that are operating now are operating in uh, good compliance. Two other items before I close up the podcast. Uh, there are two things that have always been mentioned in the PSM standard, and I would encourage everyone to make sure they cover them, and that is the uh, human factors and facility siting issues. The checklist formats are still a standard way that a lot of people like to review human factors and facility siting. Keep in mind there's emphasis coming on human factors and the relationship between man versus machine is how I like to describe it. And more and more there's going to be more guidelines uh, to influence us on how we make decisions on if the operator can perform his job safely. Facility siting, there should always be a facility siting study done on any PSM facility. The RMP program mandates that more than the PSM program, but it should be done. And the big, the big advantage to that is to reference back to the existing facility siting study to develop good, accurate consequences. When we have fires and explosions, and, and we have to look at all those events, we want to make sure that we're determining what the severity of those consequences are going to be, and there's no better way than, to do it than with the actual uh, facility siting study conducted, which is going to look at the hazards associated with fires, explosions, and toxic releases with regard to the buildings that are in our facilities. So. Keeping that in mind, I think that's the end of the podcast. Thanks for your attention, and I look forward to the next one. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Smith & Burgess's Insights into the Elements of Process Safety. Visit smithburgess.com for more process safety white papers, case studies, presentations, and, of course, podcast episodes.